Irreverent, entertaining, cool. You're listening to LA Talk Radio. Welcome to All Things Therapy. I'm your host, Lisa Tahir. I want to start by telling you a little bit of why I titled this show, All Things Therapy. To me, therapy is more than just psychology. It is the intersection of our personal psychology, how we grew up, our experiences, coupled with our upbringing, social environment, our emotions, the spiritual dimension, our cognitive abilities, our physical health, financial health, which really means how how we take care of ourselves in the material world. And I think that to feel truly whole and purposeful and engaged in life, we need to develop a working knowledge and achieve some mastery in each of these areas. I started this show to promote personal growth and transformation by involving you, the listener, in conversations with people that I most admire. Some of my guests will be authors that I have read, like today. Others will be people personally connected to my life, uh, professionally connected to my life, and those that I've never met and reached out to and asked to participate in this dialogue about well-being and health. A little bit about me is I am a licensed clinical social worker. I am also a Reiki level two practitioner. I am EMDR certified, and I have practiced psychotherapy for 18 years. The first eight years of my work was spent at a United Way agency in New Orleans, working with survivors of sexual assault, trauma, and domestic violence under the VOCA, or Victims of Crime Act, grant. I feel like I learned a solid foundation to cope and deal with a lot of intensity and, you know, hearing things that are really hard to even sit with people in their pain. From that foundation, I opened a private practice in New Orleans 10 years ago and titled it nolatherapy.com, which is New Orleans, Louisiana, therapy.com. I had no idea that about eight and a half years later, I'd be making a move to Los Angeles, where I am today in studio. And now the abbreviation is New Orleans, Los Angeles therapy, still nolatherapy.com. So I, I feel like I've challenge myself to grow personally and professionally in the same way that I ask my clients to grow and change with me, as well as people in my life personally. I expect a lot of others, and that comes from expecting a lot of myself. So I would like to bring on my amazing guest today that I'm really happy to have with me because I read one of his 94 books about 20 years ago when I was learning about psychotherapy. And just, I'm going to read some excerpts from the book later, in fact. So today we have on the show Dr. Jeffrey Kotler. He is a psychologist and professor at Cal State University, Fullerton. He has authored over 94 nonfiction books that have been translated into over two dozen languages. His New York Times bestseller, The Last Victim, 
Inside the Minds of Serial Killers, was made into the feature film Dear Mr. Gacy. He has authored textbooks as well that are used in universities worldwide. He served as a Fulbright Scholar in Peru and Iceland and has worked as a visiting professor throughout the world, including New Zealand, Australia, Singapore, and Nepal, where, along with several colleagues, they established a foundation in Nepal called Empower Nepali Girls. That foundation provides educational scholarships for girls who are most at risk for early marriage or sex slavery. He lectures around the world and is with us now. Dr. Kotler. Hi, Lisa. Welcome. How are you today? Uh, got a bit of a cold, but otherwise doing well, thanks. I hear you. Thank you for joining me in spite of being a little bit under the weather. I really appreciate it. Sure. So I know you've authored so many books. The, the one that I have resonated with time and time again is on being a therapist. And I found your work 20 years ago when I was in grad school at Tulane, and I had no idea how, how just on target you were with some of the things you spoke about. And I wondered how you got started writing because 94 books is prolific. And so I had some curiosity about that. Well, I mean, surprisingly, I was actually a really bad student. uh, (laughs) Okay. Seriously, I barely graduated high school. And, um, wow. uh, Yeah. And I couldn't get into college anywhere. Um, because my grades were so bad, so I was a, a, a late bloomer, so to speak. Yeah, where and, did you grow uh, up? Um, I grew up in Detroit. Okay, and then you ended um, up in California, where you are now, in Huntington. Pardon? And then you ended up in Huntington Beach, where you are now. Oh, probably 20 places before Okay, uh, I ended up in California. Um, but, uh, I, yeah, I struggled in school. I had some learning disabilities and some vision problems, and... Um, it took it took a while for me to um, kind of find my voice, and there was kind of an advantage in a way to you know people wonder how it's possible to write three or four books every year. But yeah. um, I I don't um, because I never learned grammar, you know, because I had vision problems, I could never see the board in school, so I I, I never learned anything that was ever on the board. So I never learned grammar, I never learned um, math. You know, anything you had to go to the board to do, I I could never see. So um, I never learned it. So I never learned grammar. To this day, I kind of know what an adverb is, ends in L-Y sometimes or something. And I know what verbs are, but in nouns, I know what nouns are, but I don't know the rest. And um, somehow that doesn't get in my way that um, people have told me that I write the way I talk. So it's pretty easy to to write when you're not so worried about, you know, all the structure and stuff like that. It just kind of comes out pretty naturally. It sounds to me like because you had challenges in those visual ways and articulating, uh, you know, in ways that we were tested growing up, that you developed more creative and intuitive abilities to tap in to other things, other nuances going on in the room, in the conversation. Do you find that to have been true? Yeah, and also... You know, whether we're talking about being a student or being a client in therapy, that um, I, I didn't know that I had any talent until, you know, one of my instructors kind of uh, identified me as being a talented writer, and I, I had no idea that 
that, that I mean, I knew I loved to write, but I never had shown it to anyone or it was never appreciated before. So, you know, that kind of validation and support was, um, you know, was really encouraging. And um, one of the challenges for us as therapists in general is that we have so many voices inside our heads yeah. of, you know, all the supervisors we've ever had and the professors we've had and the authors um, that sometimes it's hard to, to figure out what we believe or what we know because our heads are so crowded with all the advice we got from everyone else. And so, you know, it took a long time, you know, for me to to find my own voice, yeah. to find what I, what I believe or what I think that's different from the mentors and supervisors that I once had. I hear you. So... I wanted to read an excerpt. And and how old were you when you wrote your first book? First of all, I'm curious. Well, although I was a slow starter, um, once I found my stride, I actually had my doctorate when I was 23. Wow. And, Impressive. Um, okay. So I, when I was a, a doctoral student, I wrote my first book when I was 23 with my uh, one of my professors, and it was the first ethics book in the field of, of psychotherapy. Are you serious? In, yeah, in 1976. Very and, cool. Yeah. We know we need those ethics in therapy and in the healing professions. <laughs> it manages and governs so much, I think, for our clients to feel safe. Yeah, yeah. And for therapists to feel safe, too. Definitely. Exactly. Good point. When did you write on being a therapist? How how far down the road was that? Um, that was like my 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 first book that I wrote as a single author to say out loud or not out loud, but to say on the page all the things that I had, had wondered about the the kind of to, taboo subjects and the the struggles that that I was experiencing because when. As you know, when people come to therapy, they expect we have answers. And um, my experience of being a therapist is, you know, I barely know what's good for me most of the time, much less for anyone else. And Absolutely. So there were just some things that were never really talked about. And, um, you know, one good example is just uh, the experience of not knowing what, you know, what's going on. And I would sit in supervision sessions with you know, all the psychiatrists and psychologists sitting around the table, mm-hmm. you know, after, after a 10-minute presentation by some intern, they'd immediately diagnose the person. And I think to myself, how can you possibly know that? You exactly. Know, how, can you, how can you meet somebody for an hour, much less hear a 10-minute rendition of their symptoms and think you know what their problem is and what to do with them? So, And that's such an example of reducing a person to their symptoms, I think, and, and yeah. losing their humanity. And I, I know we're pressured to do that because, you know, the insurance yeah. companies won't pay if you don't come up with a diagnostic uh, impression with a number and everything. But um, I just always found that got in the way for me to when you start thinking about people as their labels instead of, you know, who they are as, as people. Yes. And you talk about that in your work as well as, as other colleagues, Dr. Bessel van der Kolk, about, you know, the exposure to prolonged even hearing about trauma can numb us and numb numb our senses and our ability to to connect to people at that human level. And so I know in your book on being a therapist, talking about self-care and ways to manage burnout and 
practicing now 18 years, it's something I have to constantly be aware of is taking care of myself. And even when I do, I still feel borderline burnout a, a lot of the time. And I, I know your book addresses that as well. Well, the, um, yeah, although one of your areas of expertise is trauma, mine at least traditionally had not been. But as you mentioned, we have this um, charitable foundation in Nepal where we yes. rescue girls at risk. And if listeners have been following the news during the last year, there were some two catastrophic earthquakes in Nepal yes. um, a year ago um, that killed tens of thousands of people and left hundreds of thousands of people homeless. Mm -hmm. And then there were floods and then there were, it's just been one thing after another. But I led a, um, a trauma team as first responders to uh, one of the epicenters of the earthquake. And we were the only medical trauma team within a hundred hundreds of miles. And there were, I think we treated maybe a thousand patients in a month. And, wow. Um, it, and, uh, what was that like being the, the professional? Well, what I was going to say is that I, I, um, I somewhat arrogantly and overconfidently thought, oh, with all these years experience, I can, I can deal with this. And I, I couldn't, I, mm -hmm. you know, that first of all, I was there during the second major earthquake and mm, uh, wow. buildings collapsing all around us and people dying. And, um, I'm not a physician. And so I'm usually not exposed to festering wounds and broken bones. And, uh, but I had to do some, some terrible things. And even after, a year, I still have startle responses, you know, if I hear a loud noise, or yes. I always look to see where the door is, so I can escape if I need to, so I'm, you know, we call that vicarious trauma, but it was, yeah. it was both primary trauma, It was uh, surviving an earthquake myself, but also just um, working with these people that are just so desperate and have... have and the level of need, I can't even imagine, you know, being here, you know, just the level of need that that was around you and that you were in. Yeah. So can you say more about this foundation and how we can learn more about it and support? And when did well, you begin it? it? I started um, it's, it's about 15 years ago. Okay. Um, I, I, I'm not sure what your experience is, with, but one of the frustrations of being a therapist is that sometimes you have one person in the room, sometimes a couple, sometimes a family. And, um, and you say the most brilliant things sometimes, and nobody hears it. Yes. And um, and I've, on some level, felt that it's almost futile sometimes to work with one person. It just seems so inefficient sometimes to work with one person at a time for an hour, where at most I can see eight or nine people in a day. And so, mm -hmm. you know, as I've been getting older, I've been trying to figure out, you know, my time is limited, and right. how can I reach more people? How can I help more people? So about 15 years ago, I was doing research in Nepal on uh, maternal mortality because more more women die of childbirth there than anywhere else, and uh, discovered that girls were disappearing, that they were being smuggled into India and oh. sold to brothels, and talking about girls that are you know, 11 and 12 years old That's because so there's a, a, market, a market for virgins. Yes. And, um, and um, so I somewhat impulsively 
asked what it would cost to save this one girl's life and okay. was told it would be $50. And I reached into my pocket and gave the principal of the school $50 and <clears throat> then learned afterwards he would keep that money. Excuse me one second. Sure. <clears throat> Unless um, I told him I was coming back to check on the girl. Really? And um, So that was 15 years ago. Okay. And now we have 300 girls. And, Amazing. Um, the first girls are in medical school and nursing school. And um, so um, that's so, how, I, how I got involved. So for 50 U.S. dollars, a, a girl's life could be saved. Yeah, for 50 bucks. It, it's amazing and sad at the same time that that's all it takes, you know, with all the wealth that, that we have and and just wow. So how can we find out more to help and donate, contribute, et cetera, to Empower uh, Nepali Girls? the website for Empower Nepali Girls. EmpowerNepaliGirls.com. Yeah. How often do you go back? Um, well, I went twice this year because oh, of wow. all the, the chaos. Yeah. And, um, for the last 15 years, I've taken teams of volunteers over, um, mostly graduate students and some faculty and some medical personnel and um we do home visits to visit all the children and um, award scholarships, but um, yeah, um, so it's been it's been quite a journey. But I've recently retired uh, from that, so I'm kind of searching for the next best thing. Congratulations! Thanks. Yes, what you're talking about is reminding me of an excerpt from your book on being a therapist that I flagged, so I'm going to read it to our listeners. Page 49, every time we speak to our clients, we heal ourselves, for there is an audience of two. We talk about what we know or what we think we know, but we teach only what we understand. We feel a tremendous incentive to answer life's most difficult questions and understand things and people. So I'm wondering, as you were in Nepal, going through the second earthquake, providing care to a large amount of people, in reflection afterwards or while you were there, did you feel a sense of connection to others and the healing of yourself, like a mutual type of exchange? Yeah, I know what the right answer is. <laughs> no, I love honesty. Is. But the honest answer is no. Yeah. Uh, I, You know, even after spending, you know, I've been to Nepal 20 times, and, um, you know, the, the thing, one of the things that bothers me about do-gooders like me is, mm-hmm. is kind of the arrogance of thinking you can go to a community or to another country or to another place and think you know what people need and what's what's best for them and um you know my experience of working in the field is of most of the time feeling lost and confused i you know i i understand a little of the language but not enough to i mean just enough to be dangerous and um, (laughs) i understand some of the customs and some of the, the the cultural prohibitions but just enough to get in trouble sometimes so um I, uh, you know, I, I kind of surrender my, my feeling of, of knowing things. I, mm-hmm. I, the longer I've been in the field, the more um, sometimes questions and doubts I have about, you know, what it is that we do and, and how, you know, how it works. So, you know, I, 
I came back from the Paula Basket case. You know, I yeah. just I I saw things that I human beings shouldn't have to see and and deal with. And holding a little three year old girl on my lap, uh, who had been burned, and her parents were crushed, and uh, I had to tell her she was an orphan. Wow. And um, I, you know, just so emotionally flooded and overwhelmed. It's and too much. By comparison, you know. Doing psychotherapy with relatively, you know, worried, well, middle-class people is, um, I've done for, you know, a long time, and I think I was just, I've just been hungry to um, feeling the clock ticking and thinking, I just don't have that much time left, and so what what do I want to do with the time I have left? And, you know, there's all kinds of really interesting research about how, you know, being involved in service in some way or altruism, yes. um, or helping others extend your life about seven years, that people that are actively involved in helping others are have a greater sense of well-being, greater life satisfaction, they have greater immunity to disease and colds. Mm-hmm. You wouldn't know that listening to me. Um, <laughs> <clears throat> um, so, I, you know, that's always been what, what drives my life is... What's, what's know, next? You know? How can I help more people in the limited time I have left? Yes. So I, I really appreciate your honesty in, in your work and even just a moment ago on the show talking about how not having all the answers yet people look to us to have those answers. And at the end of 2014, I was drugged and robbed in New Orleans at a very like nice hotel and found unconscious by the police, like abandoned on a street in New Orleans in a very dangerous area. And fortunately, I had not been assaulted, but I had a concussion. And so I found it impossible to just move on and get back to work in a in a way that felt good. I definitely, besides a concussion, had uh, memory impairment and just the, the trauma of what if, like what could have happened you know, that, that didn't. And I became very suicidal and it was so hard to work, to see my clients. And so I've self-published a book called Surrender, a psycho-spiritual guide to treating anxiety and depression. And it's, it's a very, it's more of a booklet with this two-step visualization that I came up with because even going to therapy and doing all of my self-care, it just didn't seem to help me at all. And it was just so scary to feel like I couldn't move past this event that happened to me. And though I'm fine, you know, in the here and now, I didn't feel fine. And um, so, and I was taught in in school, you know, like in, in grad school and my mentors that you really don't self-disclose as a therapist, that that's, you know, indulgent. Um, it could be dangerous, potentially clients are not paying you to hear about yourself, which I do agree. And so even to, to write this book was challenging. Like, do I really put out there my own struggle with depression and suicidality as a result of this experience? But I did. And I feel like it just helped me, you know, like move forward to be able to connect again to things that I love doing and enjoy doing and people that make me happy. And, uh, it's been it's my first book that I've ever written or put out there, and so I I plan to write more as I get older. Um, so for you, when you started writing again, I heard you say that it was just a natural fit how you learned. But um, I I notice how much you do disclose in a way that I think is helpful to others and has been to me. Yeah, well, it's the 
the way, you know, one of the reasons I think being a therapist is the best job in the world is because of that, the connection between our personal and professional lives, how, you know, the things that we, that you learn to be a social worker or the things that you learn being a therapist, um, work equally well in, in, in developing intimacy in any relationship and being responsive to people and compassionate and caring and respectful and, and just as you described, you're, you never would have chosen to be beaten and robbed, but, um, you know, that experience also informs the way you operate and the way you work as a, as a professional. And uh, yes. it, it's, you know, I know you're going to um, talk to Bessel van der Kock and some other trauma experts, but it's the, you know, the research lately on uh, post-traumatic growth is fascinating about how, you know, therapists used to use do a lot of damage because um, somebody would come in and disclose they'd been sexually abused or they'd been assaulted like you were or that um, they lived through an earthquake and therapists typically would respond oh my god that must have been so terrible for you mm -hmm. Wow! and the truth is that two-thirds of the time if you make that statement you're going to be wrong because you know the latest research shows that yes um, soldiers and um, in combat and um, and people that undergo and experience and recover and um, survive a trauma um, do experience symptoms of post-traumatic growth but I mean of uh, post-traumatic stress right. and have nightmares and um, you know all kinds of ongoing symptoms like depression and anxiety and so on but one-third recover really quickly and just kind of move on with their lives. And the really interesting thing is that one-third of people that experience abuse, trauma, neglect, um, report this incredible growth that occurred as a result of, of surviving that adversity. And, you know, the idea yes. that what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Right. And, um, so, I mean, getting robbed and, and hit over the head can either destroy you or it can make you stronger. And yes. You know, what we do for a living is help people, you know, most of the people who come to therapy very much feel like victims, you know, and right. they're out of control and they, um, you know, their the images are stuck in their head and they can't get rid of them and they're yes. um, experiencing all kinds of difficulties. But when we ask questions more neutrally, like, so what was that experience like, like for, for you? you. It's, right. it's really surprising how often... Um, people do respond, well, it was awful, it was terrible, I never wished that on myself or anyone else, but, and the but is, I've grown so much as a result of what I lived through and, and what I learned from, um, you know, from that experience. Absolutely. And, I think what you're talking about is, is the installation of hope, which is what I had to do for myself, and my practice currently is when people come in with experiences like like you cited asking you know various questions but in the end helping them to get to a place of of what it, what could be the meaning in this to make meaning of one's experience i think is a powerful agent of change and to find the hope you know to keep going despite some really really tragic things that we experience throughout our lifespans yeah one of the um the books i wrote last year is about um, the power of stories, that um, the kind of re reconceptualizing what it is that I do as a as a professor and a supervisor and a writer mm -hmm. and um, and a therapist, and it's 
basically I'm a storyteller. And yeah. um, I, I've been fascinated lately about how, you know, what we do for a living is basically, you know, hold other people's stories. And people come in and they tell a story about who they are and what happened to them. And it's usually a story in which they feel disempowered and they feel helpless and um, they very much feel like a victim. And we help them to co-author a different story, a different yes. version of, of events that, um, and, you know, as most people know, there's dozens of different approaches to therapy, but they all in some shape or form make use of storytelling. I mean, that's what self-disclosure yes. is, but it's what metaphors are, it's what teaching tales are, or, um, and I um, stumbled on this idea. I mean, I've always been you know, curious when a client or a student would approach me years later and say, oh, you know, I had such a good experience with you. And then if I ask, oh, yeah, like, what do you remember? <laughs> yeah. about our, our And what they say is, you know, they'll mention some story that I that I don't even remember. Really? But it's, you know, the, the brain, the human brain is kind of evolved as a as a storied organ. That's the way we make sense. I like that term. Making meaning, but it's the way we make sense of the world. And um and the idea for this project was um, I, I read a lot of a lot of novels and um, novels about anything, escape okay. fiction or whatever. And yeah. I, I'd re- I had read this um, zombie apocalypse trilogy, kind <laughs> of like the, the Walking Dead. And right. For a month, I had immersed myself in this in this zombie universe, and um, and they were just delightful books. Pretty funny, actually, because yeah. the. The people who survive the zombie virus are people that have watched zombie movies because they know what to do when you see a zombie. Oh, my gosh. That's great. Yeah, you get them in the head. Everyone knows that. <laughs> uh, but I finished the books, and I went for a run on the beach. Mm-hmm. And um, this guy starts approaching me from the other direction, an- another runner, and he high-fives me as we go by. And I'm thinking, that is really cool. That, that you is. Know, that, that never happens. And, you know, like two runners acknowledging each other. With a high five. Yeah. And then I start thinking, wait a minute, that never happens. Like, what if he just gave me a virus? And (laughs) I was thinking, this is insane. This is crazy. This guy's just being nice. And I'm wiping my hand on my shirt and (laughs) trying to wipe the germs off. But in that moment, I just realized how stories penetrate us so deeply that it's as if they're real. And in fact, they are real. And um, the relationships that people have with celebrities or people on reality shows, and they, they kind of feel embarrassed because they care so much, you know, what's going to happen on this show? Well, as far as your brain's concerned, your brain thinks they really are your best friends. Your brain doesn't distinguish between your real family and friends and the ones that you feel attached to in, in books you read or movies you see or television shows you see. So Yeah, our perceptions. Um, I, and I, that just really clicked for me that um, that my growth edge as a teacher and a therapist um, is being a better storyteller and, and telling stories in ways that they're designed to be more impactful and more persuasive and more influential. And the more vivid the stories, the you know, the more the more they become real for people, the more they become their own their own experiences. I'm going to share with our listeners a part of your story, again, from your book on being a therapist that I really love. It's an excerpt. It's a little bit long, but I feel like it'll, it'll really, I don't know, show something powerful that, that touched me. 
One of the most meaningful, interesting, and fulfilling parts of a therapist's life is the time spent with clients. At times, we may be practically bursting at the seams to tell friends about some prominent citizen we're working with, and yet we can tell no one about the people we work with or about the details of what we do. If we run into a client at a social gathering, etiquette requires us to fade into the background unless the client chooses to recognize us. If a client's name comes up in conversation, we must pretend indifference so as not to give away our involvement. It's as if we were conducting secret affairs with 50 people simultaneously. We even arrange our schedules and offices so clients do not accidentally meet one another. All of this results in a kind of sanctuary for the people we help and a kind of prison for ourselves. The author Guy, in his book, The Personal Life of the Psychotherapist, describes the isolation of our work as all-encompassing. Physically, we're separated from the outside world, ensconced in a soundproof chamber. We do not answer the phone, open the door, or otherwise tolerate interruptions during sessions. In the intervals in between, we are so busy doing paperwork or going to the bathroom, I'm going to add eating, returning emails and calls, that there is little time for interaction with anyone. Visitors rarely stop by because we are continually unavailable or in session. It's as if when we are in session, we cease to exist in the outside world. What are the effects of this compartmentalized isolation? Maybe it contributes to therapists' feeling of specialness and sainthood. We suffer in silence so that others may be released from pain. We may also become secretive, mysterious, aloof, and evasive when we are not at work. While we continue to struggle to be authentic, transparent, and genuine with clients. We retreat inside ourselves for comfort, or pat ourselves on the back for being so professional. Actually, we feel like martyrs. All over the city, there are restaurants and bars we cannot feel comfortable visiting because clients or ex-clients work there. At parties, we have to monitor closely how much we drink, knowing that losing control would sully our reputation. Neighbors watch our children for signs of emotional disturbance so they can substantiate the myth of the crazy shrink down the block. People constantly ask our advice on what to do about their jobs. Others feel intimidated by their own perception of therapists as mind readers. They will not get too close for fear we will disrobe their insecurities with a casual glance. Oh, you're a therapist. I suppose I should be careful around you. I just love that portion of your book. Especially living in in New Orleans, in Los Angeles, I'm more new, so this hasn't happened quite yet. But being a a native of New Orleans, um, and I used to work in the restaurant industry going through grad school, I know a lot of owners and employees, and they actually are my clients now. And so at times, there are certain places I can't go to or don't go to because it would just be potentially awkward. And, uh, you know, clients that know each other or they're friends of friends of mine, I find out in the middle of session. So there's a lot of that orchestration for me there. So coming to Los Angeles has been really refreshing in that way that since I don't know as many people, it's it's kind of more pure and, and easy in those ways. Yeah, li- listening to the to the excerpt in your comments kind of struck for me the the you know, the wondering about just all the shame mm. that we all have related to asking for help. Like, why does therapy have to be so secret? Totally. You know, why can't people be more proud? Why wouldn't they um, 
and I know some people are, and some people uh, do feel pride, but it's um, it's just really interesting that um, that there's so much shame and reluctance attached with um, admitting that not that you need help, but that you want help. That I mean. You know, we know from research that most people will get better anyway. You know, most people who are experiencing some problem in their life are going to eventually recover. It's just therapy makes it happen faster. I mean, everyone could do their their own tax return, too, but (laughs) some people decide to hire accounts and pay money for it because it's easier. But we don't feel shame about asking for help from an accountant, or we don't feel shame... If we have a cold like this, and to go see a doctor right. and say, I have a cold, can you help me? Or I have a virus, a zombie virus, can you help me? <laughs> so, um, you know, here, and, he, yeah, go on, and then and, I'll say. Yeah. No, and I was just thinking, why is it that when we admit that we have a relationship problem or that, you know, there's a problem in our family or that we feel depressed or anxious or that there's, you know, we lost our job, you know, there's just so much shame associated with not only having the problem, but also asking for help yes. to, to work it through. And that's, that's really inhibiting for a lot of people who could use help and, and are reluctant to ask for it. You know, as I'm hearing you talk about this, I, I'm having various thoughts. I'm wondering, you know, if this speaks to our profession and to the, the shame that maybe the profession put on to, you know, with the such, I, I don't know, like, you know, where, how to even begin to shift that is one of the things I'm wondering, listening to. Yeah, and I'm, I'm not sure. Maybe it doesn't need to be shifted. Right. But I mean, I, the, the things that people talk about in therapy are so private and so, you know, and they're often secretive and they're often um, confessing and admitting things that they've done or whatever that they feel badly about. And, you know, like we're never surprised. I mean, we've heard it all before. There's sure. kind of nothing new that anyone's going to tell us that we haven't heard before, but it's um, it's so validating for anyone to hear, you know, guess what? You're not the only one in the world who feels that way. Absolutely. It, that's a really common feeling, and people get depressed sometimes, and people feel anxious sometimes, and people have problems with their partner sometimes, and they have problems with their kids and their parents, and that's normal. Right. Um, in fact, it's not only normal, but it's I remember reading this wonderful quote. It was in a spy novel. Okay. Um, and I don't remember what the book was about, but I remember this one line that, it, that was, it said something like, if parents didn't fight with their children, if parents and children didn't fight, then children would never leave home, and then the world would end. <laughs> and I thought that was so profound. I mean, for any of us to do family therapy, it kind of normalize, you know, normalizes... You know, like when you have an adolescent or a young adult who's fighting with their parents, like that's your job. Your job is to fight with your parents so you yes. leave home and and get on with your life instead of being so dependent. And um, so I, I've, that's the kind of validation that, you know, we can sometimes offer people that you're not bizarre and you're not strange and, you know, you're not crazy just because you have those thoughts or because you're struggling with, with that issue. Um which I guess is why I love group therapy so much because, you know, it's a bunch of people in a room owning and talking about the same issues. Yeah. So I was curious, in, in your practice with clients, what what do you specialize in? Who do you see? How much of your time is spent doing that kind of direct clinical work currently? 
Well, I mentioned that, that, you know, earlier the transition in my career is that I'm too impatient um, these days to work with one person at a time. Yes. You know, that I, I want to I wanna do as much as I can. I want to help as many people as I can. So most of my work now is community-based, um, you know, that it's going into communities and working with people who would never, ever think about going to see a therapist. And, um, but I, you know, the, the class, the graduate class I teach most often is group therapy. And, okay. um, um, I, you know, that's, I, I think I've taught the class more than a hundred times and I still don't know what I'm doing. I mean, I still <laughs> don't understand all the complexity of, of what goes on in a room when you put a bunch of people together. And I, I love that. Yeah. I, mean, I, I at first, I was freaked out by it, like, holy crap, what's going on? Right. Um, because there's so much going on at the same time, but now I just, I love that. I love the feeling of not, not understanding, in a way, um, because I, I learned so much from, from every session uh, that goes like that. And when I got burned out doing individual therapy, the, the dialogue inside my head was, oh, no, not another one of those again. Right. Um, meaning you know, my practice for a while was only with the so-called worried well, that is um, people that were already pretty highly functioning, but um, were struggling struggling with some adjustment issue or right. some reaction to something that happened. And um, it's not that that's not important work, because it is, but I just felt like there's so many other people that could do this besides me. Yes. And what can I go out and do that nobody else is going to do? And so... I keep hearing just the way you, you, you know, push yourself in, in a natural way to to want to help, like you said, more people than just working one-on-one in the room, through your foundation, through your books. And um, were you all, like, do you remember a certain time in your life or age when, when you became more excited about, you know, how can I just do more and help more? Well, it's just, you know, there's nothing that bothers me more than hypocrites. Mm. And, you know, there are... Um, it it just, you know, I would sit in class when I was a grad student and some professor would drone on and on and um, I think to myself, I would never see you as a therapist. You know, you're clueless. And um, A professor and told te- you that? And you're going to teach me or... Yeah. Oh, him, yeah. I get it. You were thinking that, absolutely. Yeah, or, you know, there are colleagues we have. You know, I, I've worked in some places that are some pretty toxic environments and, you know, psychotherapists can sometimes be really mean to each other and, and less than supportive. And so the one thing that's, that's bothered me the most is not being congruent, you know, asking people to do things that I'm not willing to do myself. Yes. And yes. Everything we stand for is about encouraging and persuading people to do things that are really, really hard that they don't want to do. And right. I, it just bothers me that I would tell people to do, take risks and, go outside your comfort zone and create new adventures and um, take risks in intimacy. And if I'm not willing to, to do those, do those things myself. And right. so I, I know that's been a really strong motive to and, mm-hmm, try to reinvent myself. And that's, you know, I turned 65 last week and I think I have time to do one more thing. And I'm, I'm struggling myself right now trying to figure out what's that going to be? What's it going to look like? Um, and I want to do something different. You know, yes. I want to live another life. And, 
and hopefully have time to do that. So happy belated birthday, Dr. Cutler. <laughs> Thanks. And as you're talking, I'm, I'm thinking uh, I'm a Gemini with Aries rising, Aries moon, which I feel like affects and, and makes a lot of sense about me. I'm, I'm personally curious if you'd like to share. You said your birthday's next week. What I'm curious what your sign is. Oh, it was Aquarius. Aquarius. And <coughs> I, I'm a lay person with astrology. With I'm, no, I'm no expert in astrology. I have friends who are. But I know Aquarius are really about like a vision of the future and creating you know, good and it, it really impacting the world. So that makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah, unless Hitler was an Aquarius. <laughs> Mis- misguided, <laughs> to say the least. <laughs> so what else What else is important for you to share? We have a couple minutes left. Um, what is to leave our listeners with and, and let them know about? I'm, I'm thoroughly enjoying our time together, by the way. Um, I'm, I'm not sure where else to go with this. Um, I, um, you can have to prompt me because I'm drawing a blank sure. right now. How, how can people, well, Je- jeffreycutler.com is your website. Yeah. J-E-F-F-R-E-Y. Oh, okay. So yeah. I have something to say. That, sure. Um, um, I don't want to be contacted by anyone any ever again. Um, <laughs> I know no, how I've you feel. I've been doing this, I, you know, with the way things change with technology, I've, I've been like my another one area of growth edge right now is trying to disconnect from mm. all the multitasking and all the barrage of of texts and emails Technology. And, and stuff that come through every day and it's it's exhausting and especially if the most important thing is to be present and yeah. I'm kind of appalled at what's what's normal now that you walk into a restaurant, you see a family of four, two kids and two parents sitting at the table, and they're all on their phones talking to, you know, texting someone else. Yeah, and so I noticed that I, as well. So I've been leaving my phone behind. I've been not answering my phone. I've been trying to, um, I, I just get so many emails and texts as it is. I don't want any more. <laughs> Did you notice by chance feeling anxious at first when you began doing that, realizing, oh, <gasps> I don't have my phone or, or was it relieving from the get go? No, it's relieving. I don't, I don't care, but I, I'm, I'm also so obsessive compulsive about being responsible. So yeah. I, you know, I've had so many experiences in my life when I've written people and they haven't written me back or like not even the courtesy to say, thank you, but I'm not going to respond to you. It's just like silence. So you know, I do make I an effort to respond to everybody. And, yes. Um, but it sounds like... exhausting. I, yeah. Yes. It sounds like you're talking about managing, you know, what you're putting out there versus what you're taking in and that, that really tenuous balance. And it sounds like you're doing well to to set down the technology and take well, time for yourself. I'm learning. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Well, thank you for joining me today, Dr. Kotler. I really appreciate your time. Well, as I mentioned, I'm really honored that um, I got to be part of your very, very, very first show to launch this new um, valuable project that you've done. And you have a lot of amazing guests scheduled in the the coming weeks. And um, I just feel really privileged and, and grateful that you thought to include me. Thank you so much. And I hope your cold gets better. Thanks so much. You're very welcome. Bye. Bye bye. 
So this is about to conclude our first show today. In the future, if you'd like to call in with a question or comment, the number is 818-602-4929. I forgot to say that earlier. And I'd like to talk a little about our show next week. I'm really excited to have a dear friend on the show, Amy Simonetta of ASI Endurance. She's actually in New Zealand right now as we speak, preparing to do what I believe is her 10th full Ironman triathlon. And if you don't know about the Ironman, the full Ironman is a 140.6 mile race done in one day with a cutoff time Uh, allowed, I believe it's 14 hours. It's a 2.3 mile swim, followed by a 112 mile bike, and then ending with a full marathon, 26.2 mile run. Amy was a professional triathlon. She raced for a number of years. Snickers sponsored her. And a funny story she had shared with me is Snickers sponsored her. You know, a lot of big companies sponsor triathletes and would send her all these like marathon bars and Snickers bars. And certainly she's like, I I don't eat that stuff. You can't do Ironmans on Snickers. And um, so she would give them out to all her friends and colleagues and such at work. So she will be with us next week talking about what it's like to be a professional triathlete. She's retired now and races as an age group grouper. And her company, ASI Endurance, trains triathletes at all levels. She's helped me. I've done three half Ironman triathlons, 70.3 miles. And she does training programs for you remotely. You do not have to live in her city and monitors you and just she's an amazing guest. Thank you for listening and I look forward to being with you next week. You're listening to All Things Therapy with Lisa Tahir only on LA Talk Radio.